You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. We'll continue this week to look at what constitutes a healthy church and what to look for in your next church. Unfortunately, this is the third to last of the City Edge meetings um, by Zoom, but uh, or in any format, I guess you could say. So I'll do a quick review of what we've uh, been looking at so far. Two weeks ago, I talked about why we need to be part of a local church. There are a number of reasons and a number of benefits in being a part of a local church. And for, for starters, the New Testament knows nothing of Lone Ranger Christians. That's those who want to go their own way, do their own thing, and who choose to abandon the local church. These people are aberrations. That seems a harsh word, maybe, but I think it's true. They're aberrations. To be sure, there are times when Christians get hurt or disillusioned or even led astray by some bad teaching and choose for a time to uh, not go to church. But that should only be for a relatively brief time. Because there's one thing that's certain in the Bible, and that's that Christians should want to get together. It's in our DNA to spend time with our family, our eternal family. In fact, the New Testament suggests that lone rangers are more likely to be wolves or to become wolves than they are to be part of Jesus' flock. Now, that sounds pretty hard, but I think uh, that can be pretty easily shown from the New Testament. Another reason why we should be part of a local church is that the New Testament is full of one another commands that are difficult and in some cases impossible to fulfill unless you are part of a local church. As Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. We've been through a couple of years of uh, pretty tough times right around the globe and many people think this is signs of the very near coming of Jesus Christ and the end of human history. If that's the case, Hebrews tells us we need to be gathering all the more to encourage one another as we see the day drawing near. Now, the local church is designed by God himself to shape us, to stretch us, to encourage us, to challenge us, to help us, and ultimately to mould us into the image of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. Lastly, and if that's all that is not enough, the local church is God's idea, not man's idea. So if God thinks it's a good idea, then it must be a good idea and it must be necessary for our spiritual health. Then last week, I presented a longish list of things that you need to consider when you're looking for your next church. Some things are more important than others, and some things on that list are vitally important, and they are all, regardless of how important they were, things that you need to be thinking about. The most important things, the really necessary things, were theological, doctrinal issues. Not every group that calls itself a church is really a church. Some actually reject some of the foundational truths of the Christian faith. Things such as the Trinity and the virgin birth, the resurrection of Jesus and his coming return as judge of every person. 
Any group that rejects these things is not a church, no matter what they may call themselves. And getting involved with them will quite possibly lead you to eternal destruction. I'm not exaggerating when I say that. It's really that significant and it's really that dangerous that you make sure you are in a genuine Christian church. A pretty simple tool to use when checking the beliefs of any church, I think, is the Nicene Creed. If they disagree with anything in the Nicene Creed at any point, then they've strayed from the faith that has once for all been delivered to the saints, as Jude put it. There are, of course, other and lesser issues to consider. How frequently do they celebrate the Lord's Supper? What do they believe about who should receive baptism and the mode of baptism? When do they think Jesus will return? And how will the end times play out? None of these things are salvation issues, but they will have an impact on whether you can be totally committed to that church. If you disagree with any of their beliefs about some of these things, you'll never be able to fully get behind the work that they're doing. And it's important that you can get properly involved with your local church. The church needs you. It needs your skills. It needs your talents. It needs your knowledge, your presence, your friendship. And most of all, it needs your heart for God. It needs you to help it become mature. But you need it too. You need the local church. For the local church is the primary means that God uses to conform us to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, there are also matters of personal preference to be thinking about. When do they meet? Is it 10 a.m. on a Sunday morning or 6 o'clock on a Friday evening? What works best for you? Do they have a separate children's church? What's their style of musical worship? Do they sing the latest Christian worship music delivered at maximum volume by a slick band in a dark room? Or do they only sing the Psalms, a cappella? Or do they do something in between? None of these things is necessarily right or wrong, but they will all influence your decision. So there's a lot to think about when you're looking for your next church. And it's not a decision that I can make for you. The best I can do is give you some guidelines, some principles, some pointers to help you to make a wise and informed decision. I hope and pray that you will make a good decision for your next church because the next church you settle into can make or can break your faith. It would be a tragedy if any of you were to walk away from church altogether in the future. It would be a tragedy if your next church were to lead you into error that causes you to make shipwreck of your faith. It does happen, and it's heartbreaking to see when it does. And not only does your decision affect you, but it may affect your children and their children after them. A poor choice now can have generational impact on your family. And it may affect your friends too, if you choose, if they choose to follow you to that bad church. Now, I don't want you to be paralyzed with fear, though, that you may make a wrong choice. As I said last week, I'm convinced that if you approach your search with a discerning eye, not judgmental or critical, but discerning, and if you approach it with a genuine desire to find a new spiritual home where you can be involved, the Lord knows how to lead you where he wants you next. And it matters to me where you settle next. 
I care about these things because, as the Apostle Paul said to the church in Corinth, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But one of the most important things to look for, and I'll be focusing on this today in your new church, is how they handle the Bible. How much respect and honour do they show it? In one of America's largest churches, the preacher asked the congregation to hold their Bibles up in the air before he begins his preach. And they repeat after him something like this. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Today I will be taught the word of God. I boldly confess my mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I will never be the same in Jesus' name. And that's likely the only time during their service that they will use the Bible. The Bible is only a prop in this church. The preacher then goes on to deliver his motivational message that's more psychology and self-help than gospel. If any church you visit is like that, my advice is run away, run far away and don't look back. Now, I once heard a suggestion that preachers shouldn't quote from the Bible in their sermons because it turns people off. People don't want to hear God's word anymore. They're much more interested in thought-provoking stories and relevant life experiences. Now, there may be some truth in that. Many people don't want to hear God's word. And in fact, nobody by nature wants to hear his word. His word only becomes desirable when and appealing to you if God has changed your heart. For up until that time, up until the time he gives you a new heart, his word condemns you. So why would you want to hear it? So that's at least one reason why some churches don't use the Bible much or they don't use it at all. Again, if that's the philosophy of the church or of the preacher himself, I suggest you run away from there. Because God's word is always relevant. In fact, God's word is the primary means that God uses to shape you into the image of Christ. So it's impossible to understate the importance of hearing God's word, of hearing it regularly and examining yourself in light of that word. As one author has said, the Bible alone is supernaturally inspired to transform your heart, your mind and your life. That's exactly what the Bible claims for itself. Paul wrote to his son in the faith, Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation. Continue in this, Paul says, through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So one of the most important questions to ask yourself when you're choosing a new church is how much do they use the Bible in the service generally and in the sermon itself? For several years, we've opened up our services with a Bible reading so we get to hear the pure word of God 
unaccompanied by any commentary or any explanation. We read all the way through John's Gospel, and now we're most of the way through the Psalms. Now, some churches, particularly the more traditional ones, have a similar practice. They'll often have more than one Bible reading during their service, and the passage that the sermon is based on will be read out before the pastor gets up to preach. In some churches, they invite the congregation to stand when the Bible is being read. I like that practice. We've done it inconsistently at City Edge, but I like it. While it's not commanded anywhere that we should stand for the reading of God's word, it implies something about the value that the church and the people in that church place on God's word. Now, how they value the word and how much of the word they use in their services is one of the most important features of a local church. And that ties in a bit with their philosophy of preaching. Do they declare the whole counsel of God in their preaching? That was what Paul claimed to do in Acts 20, 27. He said, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So that raises the question of how do we declare the whole counsel of God in our preaching? And why is it so important that we declare the whole counsel of God? In the context of that verse I just quoted, Paul is saying to the Ephesian elders, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, he tells them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Because I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. If nothing else, Paul is claiming here that his preaching, his declaring the whole counsel of God has protected this local church from becoming feed for fierce wolves. And he goes on to say, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day and night to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. One of the greatest challenges for any pastor is how to deliver the whole counsel of God to his people. There are two basic methods of preaching that pastors use. That's topical preaching and expository preaching. I'm convinced that one method is generally better than the other at delivering the whole counsel of God. Topical preaching is a style that speaks on a particular topic and a different topic each week. It's what I'm doing right now. It may be part of a series where each message is different but related to the others. A series about the various spiritual gifts, for example, or a series on the attributes of God. That's topical preaching. Or each message may be totally independent of the others. This week it may be about how to be a good witness in your workplace. Next week, it may be on what the Bible teaches about prayer. Hopefully, the pastor will pull all the relevant scriptures from all over the Bible to make his case. And he won't just be spouting 
his own theories and preferences and ideas. By contrast, expository preaching is where the pastor works through a book of the Bible, verse by verse, opening up what it means for his congregation. Expository preaching exposes the meaning of the text. Now, I've used both methods over the past few years. A couple of years ago, I started the year with a series of topical messages on the spiritual disciplines. Some months ago, I did a series on how Christians should respond to government restrictions on churches meeting together, their topical preaching. But by far, the majority of my preaching has been expository. We work verse by verse and passage by passage through the first eight chapters of John's Gospel. Some verses contain such a wealth of treasure that we spent several weeks on one verse alone, such as John 3.16, which took four weeks to cover. And even then, we barely scratched the surface of that word, that verse. Recently, we spent several weeks looking at the first three chapters of Genesis. And neither method is necessarily right, and neither method is necessarily exclusive of the other. But I believe on balance, expository preaching is the better method for preaching the whole counsel of God. Now, the challenge for topical preachers is twofold. How do I decide what to preach on next week and with sufficient time to do a good job of preparation? And how do I cover the whole counsel of God and not fall into the trap of repeating my favourite topics over and over again? It has to be said, I've been in plenty of churches, and you may have too, where you have a pretty good idea of what the preacher will be on, will be talking about in this week's sermon, because it's his favourite topic. You've heard it 20 times before. After a while, you begin to wonder if the Bible actually talks about anything else, because if it does, this particular preacher doesn't seem to have noticed. Expository preaching addresses both of those challenges of topical preaching. You know in advance, maybe even a year in advance, what verse or passage you'll be preaching on. That gives the preacher plenty of time to prepare. Something he reads now may be relevant to a message to come two months down the track so he can follow the way in preparation. And hopefully this helps him to do justice to the passages working through on that particular day. And frankly, I don't know how I'd come up with a new topic to preach each week to you. I suspect I'd be frantically looking for some inspiration, some ideas on Saturday night for the Sunday morning service. And that wouldn't demonstrate respect for the beauty and the depth of God's word, nor would it feed you in the way that you need to be fed. Secondly, expository preaching also forces the preacher to confront topics and situations that he may not be particularly comfortable talking about or that may challenge his theology or his hearer's theology. My theology and my understanding of the Bible have been shaped more by the challenges of expository preaching than by almost anything else I can think of. In some cases, it's refined my thinking or it's deepened my understanding of a certain doctrine. In other cases, it's opened up my eyes to the reality of the, something like the new heavens and the new earth in the afterlife, something that was only vague and unformed in my thinking before. And in all cases, it has helped to convince me of the truth 
and the value of God's word. There are other benefits too, maybe more subtle, less noticeable, but they're worthwhile benefits anyway. Imagine this scenario. The pastor is working through Mark's gospel and he comes to Jesus' teaching in, John, in Mark chapter 10 about divorce. And imagine there's a married couple in his congregation that have been talking about getting divorced, but they haven't spoken to anyone else about it yet. Now, they can't accuse their pastor of choosing this text to sort them out because he's just naturally come in the flow of the preaching through Mark's gospel. Rather, it's come up at that time because the Holy Spirit knows exactly how to time a particular message to meet the needs of his people. That exact situation happened to me earlier this year after I preached about the first marriage in Genesis. And it opened up a conversation with a person which later, uh, later on in which the Holy Spirit was able to settle in that person's mind the right and the godly course of action. That's invaluable. And God does that all the time with preaching in, in general, but he does it frequently with expository pre uh, preaching. So when I'm looking for my next church, right at the top of my list will be whether they preach expository sermons. For I've found that those who use this method almost invariably take the word of God seriously enough that they believe it has power in itself to change, change lives. And they don't need to rely on gimmicks or interesting stories to get the message through. I'll also be looking for who is the focus of their sermons. Is it Jesus Christ? For the, that's the calling of all preachers everywhere to proclaim Jesus Christ and the gospel of his grace. As long as he is the central focus, I can forgive a multitude of other flaws and sins in the preaching. A preacher doesn't need to be a dynamic preacher if he's preaching Christ. In fact, even preaching about the Holy Spirit should focus on Jesus. Remember what Jesus said in John 15, 26, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The Holy Spirit's role is to speak of Jesus, not to speak of himself. So how can our role as preachers be anything less than that? There are a couple of dangers you need to be aware of in the preaching of any church you're checking out. I've talked about these in the past. I'll just give you a quick refresher on them. And you need to be on the lookout for these when you visit a new church. Both of them can be found in some of the largest churches in Australia and the US and other places around the world. I talked about them when we worked our way through John chapter 7, in fact. The first and probably the most common is what's become known as moralistic therapeutic deism. It's a big name for a simple idea. It's basically the idea that God, what God wants for you most for you is that you be happy. So your Christian faith consists in trying to improve your lot in life, by, mostly by your own efforts, so that you can be happy. God only needs to get involved if it becomes obvious that you can't sort things out for yourself. The rest of the time, you have no need of him. And he has no particular interest in you. This kind of preaching is all about making you feel better about yourself. 
boosting your self-esteem. And it's about encouraging you to be a good person because, after all, good people go to heaven. While this kind of preaching claims to be Christianity, it really is atheism because the God of the moralistic therapeutic deist bears little resemblance to the God of the Bible. Those preachers won't say much about our sin or about God's holiness and his justice. They won't say much about our justly deserved condemnation, nor will they say very much about how much Christ had to suffer in our place to pay the penalty for our sin. Instead, you'll get motivational talks telling you how good you are deep down and how to have your best life now, as its most famous purveyor puts it. This message is phenomenally popular, but it's not the gospel, and it offers nothing for salvation. The other danger to your faith is the prosperity gospel, the word of faith message, the health and wealth or name it and claim it type of message. It's also phenomenally popular. If the size of their churches are anything to go by, you'll pick prosperity gospel up pretty quickly. It insists that God rewards your faith by healing you of all your diseases and giving you enough money to buy anything you want. After all, they'll tell you, it's your divine right to be healthy and wealthy. And if you're not, there's only a few reasons why you're not. Maybe it's because you're not really a Christian. Therefore, you're not entitled to be healed. Or you are a Christian, but you're still so immature that you just don't understand this truth yet. Or you're a Christian, but you're in sin, known or unknown sin, so you don't deserve healing. Or simply you just don't have enough faith. You need to drum up some more. And neither of these two, moralistic therapeutic deism or the prosperity gospel, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you visit a church that preaches either of them, I suggest you turn your back on it and walk out straight away. For both of them will damage or destroy your faith. Neither of them bears any resemblance to the gospel of your salvation. And if you should visit a church that preaches either of these, get out of there in double quick time. Now, I've spent so much time today on the importance of preaching in your search for a new church for a good reason, because the preaching of God's word is one of the primary means that the Holy Spirit uses to mature us, to grow us, to shape us, to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. I would hope and pray that here at City Edge, we've been able to feed you such a steady and healthy diet of God's word over the nearly 14 years that you'll never be satisfied with fluff again. I hope you've had enough of a taste of solid food that mere milk will never fill you. I trust that we've been able to deposit such seeds of his word in you through our preaching that you'll grow into strong trees bearing much fruit for the rest of your Christian life. As Paul wrote to the Philippian church, is my prayer for you all. I'm sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me 
of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the, the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and with discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. You speak through your word. And, Lord, your Holy Spirit applies your word to our hearts, our minds, our lives, as we open our ears to listen to you, Lord. Thank you, God, that you are not a God who is distant and silent, but you are near, closer than a brother. And you speak to us today in clear and no uncertain terms through your word. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here as they begin to explore other options in the the local church, a new place to go to, Lord, that that you'll bring them wisdom and discernment in choosing that church, that you will help them to listen to the preaching, to observe the way the services run, the way the word is respected or disrespected in that church so that they can make wise decisions, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you will place them exactly where they need to be for the next phase of their Christian life. That in years to come, they will be strong like a tree planted by a stream that puts its roots down deep and is always green and bearing fruit. Pray, Lord, that your word will work into our hearts in such a way that this will be true of each and every one of us. Lord, I pray that none of us will, will be very long out of a good and healthy church before we get settled in. Lord, would you help us to settle into our new churches with a desire, with the conviction that we need to be a fully functioning part of that church and not just a keen consumer who sits on the fringes and listens then then leaves. Help us, Lord, to have the conviction of the beauty and the necessity of the local church, this body, Jesus, that you gave your own body for. Help us to value it, Lord, and to value your word above all things. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.